Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's Tuesday. That means we have another episode of the MSP Initiative. I am happy to have back on the MSP Initiative Live with Coburn from uh, MSP CFO. Uh, we had Larry on earlier in the year in the thick of the beginning part of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, that session is recorded online. You can go and, 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 and read it, but I'll give you some cliff no- or listen, watch it, but I'll give you some cliff notes. Um, we talked earlier in the year about, you know, really battening down the hatches, right? Looking at your customers, figuring out your profitability at on a per, per customer basis so that you understand, is it worthwhile to continue with a particular account or not? Do you have to tighten things up? You know, how do delayed payments after you've gone through that math affect your cash flow and what you should have been doing to get to this point now, right? Which is December 1st, at least right now in the time zone that we're in. Um, it's December 1st. We have a month before the, of most businesses' fiscal years, um, you know, December 31st. And I would love to first get an idea from you. First of all, thanks for coming on, Larry. Um, Second of all, I'm happy to have you. So second of all, you know, so you have a ton of people that you work with regularly, right? You're, you're consulting, you know, you're, you know, they're virtual CFO, if you would, right? Trying to help them understand where their business is going, where they're at, where they're profitable and where they're not. So Zoom back, right, to when we talked until now, right, which something like a six or seven month gap. How did things pan out? What did it did it go the way you thought it would? Uh, you know, when it comes to looking at the people that you consult with on a regular basis, you know, where where did things kind of even out or average out? Right. So, one of the things we found, right, so this year has been, for lack of a better term, it's been a journey. So you can't really look at the entire journey, but because there were multiple stages. And let's talk about how it went through each stage. Stage number one is February into March, you're reading the newspaper, we're getting increasingly concerned. People are saying the sky is falling. We did not have credible evidence that it wasn't falling. So you kind of had to believe that it was going to happen. And it did in a short period of time, the economy locked down for a period of time in March and April. Uh, Kids were home. You know, people didn't know what the future would be like. And we were, we were all collectively concerned. If I was a business owner and I am a business owner, I would say I have to tighten things up. I do not know what the next six months are going to look like. The next four weeks are terrifying. And George, let's be honest. They were a scary time. I'm not in the communications business. I did not make money out of people distance working. So some people didn't have it as good as others. But it was a it was a scary time, and a lot of our clients came to us and said we want to you know suspend all our costs, and other clients said well what what are we going to do, and that was stage one. That is you know there's there's the five stages of grief. I guess you could try and map that to the stages of Corona. Stage number one was uncertainty and panic, and it was appropriate. You if you weren't worried in March, you weren't paying attention, and then things start coming through. The virus numbers start coming down. People start learning how to wear a mask. People start learning how to be safe. People start getting more comfortable. People start realizing treatments are getting better. And people start realizing you're still going to buy food. 
your favorite restaurant you'll try to take out from. You're still buying products. Things are going to change very quickly, but there'll still be an economy. So what we found on our side is people then, the smart ones, and other people may not have had the resources to affect that smartness. What they did is they said, okay, this year is actually going to happen. The sky hasn't fallen. The world hasn't ended. There's going to be a tomorrow. How do we get to tomorrow? And the answer isn't just let's burn everything. The answer was let's make a plan. The smartest MSPs made a plan. That's the first thing that they did. And they said, you know what? I'm going to look across my industries and my hospitality clients really aren't going to pay their bills. My essential services, my healthcare ones, they're probably going to be okay. And they said, you know what? Based on that, when I thought I was going to make 30% margins this year or 25% margins, I'm going to make 5% margins. Five is not zero. Wow. We're going to get to the other side. And this is what they thought at the time. We're going to get to the other side. We're not going to shut everything down. We're not going to fire every talented employee. We're going to maybe take advantage of this situation to make some difficult decisions, but we're going to get to the next phase of it. And I think what most of our clients had found was they got to the next phase pretty safely. And the ones that retained their best employees, the ones that took care of what they needed to take care of, got there. Things are different, but they're surviving and they're moving forward. And then we get into the summer. And what they realize is that stuff's coming back. Projects are happening. You know, you can now buy a laptop again and set somebody up on a remote network. You couldn't get a laptop for, you know, four to six weeks. And what we found is our clients actually are doing okay. This isn't the best year they've ever had, but in light of COVID, many of our clients got to the other side doing pretty well. Um, I really did not see a uniform seismic shift that was not able to revert. This wasn't a V-shaped recovery. Our industry, I think, took a dip and then came back and it took dips in different places. Managed services were relatively stable, but project work that kind of went on hold. You're not going on site to, to do a move, to do any of that sort of stuff. And that, that too has slowly come back. So the, the takeaways, the learnings that I think our clients had and the, the ones that we've always tried to impress upon them is make a plan. You have to make a plan so that you know, who can I keep? What tools can I keep? What office space should I keep? Because if you get rid of all of it, then you don't have a plan. There was, um, there's a really bright guy that uh, I talked to years ago. He was having some tough times and he referred to this. I don't I, I may have told this to you last time you and I spoke and it's a story that always sticks with me. He talks about um, American bombers during World War II flying over Germany. And we're not gonna get into the imagery of loss of life and destruction of property, but it's an interesting analogy because they would carry so many bombs and ordnance over Germany that they wouldn't really have fuel left to get home. It would take so much to get them there. So they take their guns and they throw them overboard, throw them out of the plane, just to be able to make weight to get home. And you're thinking, well, maybe that's gonna get you home, but you can't defend yourself. So you have to be able to make that decision. How can you protect the vehicle, protect what you're talking about so that you survive? And it's difficult decisions. And I think the ones that were able to say, we can make it through. Um, now, so, I'm sorry, go ahead, please. I was gonna say, so like, did you find that largely people didn't have to cut, cut headcount? Did they go back? Did some people have to go back to their employees and ask them to take a pay cut? 
Some did. Yeah, yeah some they, are seeing reduced okay. headcount. We, we actually built reports showing this is the headcount. If you had to service all your tickets, this is the headcount you needed. Three months ago, this is what you need now. Um, and we shared that with them and we showed them how the, the headcount would change over time. And it was a small headcount. Listen, times are good for a while. Probably just about every company could afford to lose their C players. And this gave them a reason to do it. I, I worked in banking early in my career and you know that in times are good, you make money and times are bad. They filter everybody out and just the good ones stay and they ride it to the next one. It's, it's the same here. This, this was a necessary, thankfully it was only so far a necessary purge and people, most people were able to continue to move forward. I can't think of it. Obviously the M&A activities continued, so that may have mass stuff, but I don't think there's any of my clients, I don't know about yours, that went out of business. No, I don't think any clients went out of business. I think a lot of, I think, you know, in a few cases, some people dramatically cut back. Um, just, I guess they were pick, you know, like, unfortunately, maybe had, were heavy on hospitality, heavy on transportation, right? Heavy on the industries that literally got crushed the hardest. Mm -hmm. And they just took it because they had verticalized in those areas and who was going to know, right? Uh, people who, which is interesting, it's like the anti theme to the industry, the people who were more generalist, right? They had people in multiple industries. It wasn't any one specific vertical that kind of like, you know, took any business on that made sense. Generally were okay, right? Maybe they, right. you know, they had customers that dramatically cut back. Yeah, no, maybe they had had some. I've heard people who had very large customers. Let's say you had a co company who go ahead on, keep going. Was a hundred employees, mm -hmm. and now they're down to eight, seven, right? So that was a large decrease in revenue. Uh, or the guys who said, "Hey, you know, I had some, you know, contracts that were in there where basically they folded up, right? And I, I lost a couple of recurring agreements just because the companies aren't there anymore." Um, but largely, no, I, I hadn't heard anyone just straight up say, I'm done. I'm out. Lights are off. See you next year under a different business. <laughs> right. Which really says something because there's not a lot of industries where, or I'm sorry, I should say there were a lot of industries where it, it was just horrible. If you're in the restaurant business, small retail business, I, you know, it's said everything they built is now gone. So, I mean, it, what goes so, to show is that what happened for our industry, luck favored the nimble. The people that could yeah. reduce some headcount if, you know, they found that their workload had gone down a little because they lost a few clients. The ones that could put pressure on their clients that were slow paying them so they could deal with it. The ones that adapted their schedule. They were prepared for this and they're going to be prepared for the next one. What, you know, I, I've heard some very, very smart people say what happened this year was 10 years compressed into six months. This yeah. was a, a rapid, rapid maturation of the market. And, you know, we should still plan on things like this happening, but at least you have a little more headwind. And if you, okay, so let's plan ask some, it, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, let's, let's ask some, let's ask some targeted questions. So a lot of people took either PPP or idle money, obviously U.S. facing companies. Um, 
we didn't know what was going to happen. There was a lot of talk about automatic forgiveness uh, below a certain amount, stuff like that. But what seems to have come out, unless it changes, is that from the IRS is going to count forget any loans or any forgived, you know, amount that you get as just straight up income. Yes. Have you heard that? Well, so it's, you get, I'm sure you get multiple emails from accounting firms on a regular basis. So some of the emails that I've read, you and I are not accountants. People should review this with their own tax advisors. But what I've read is that the government has given us, was kind enough to lend us money. The government also will forgive that loan. A forgivable loan is a taxable event. Somebody's essentially giving you the money. Let's say it's $100. They've given you $100. That's $100 in revenue. And they're going to say that's tax-free. Except you already spent $100 of money on your employees if you used it the way that PPP was originally intended. And obviously, there's, there's broader uses now. So what they're saying is, okay, we'll let you keep that $100 and not call it taxable. But when you spent the $100 on your employees, that's no longer a tax deduction. So what they're saying is essentially, at the end of the day, yes, what you receive for PPP is now a taxable event. But what I've read recently is even worse than that. So I don't know about you, and I, I read, you know, it's, it's actually public knowledge. I think they're making everybody's name public. I received PPP. Um, I was, and I will be completely frank about it. I was going to consider reducing payroll. I also was in the panic mode. I opted not to reduce payroll because PPP was there. So I said, listen, if things go badly, at least I have the government that will pay the salaries of my people. I did not reduce payroll. I used my PPP for that. And we did take a hit. Um, what I would say though, is that, uh, what I've read recently, though, is that um, when I took the, when I, that we are going to have to take the tax hit this year regardless. I have not asked for forgiveness yet, but I will still take a tax hit for expenses that I will not be able to write off in the future. So have you asked for forgiveness? Yeah. So, I mean, our bank basically waited until literally just two and a half weeks ago where they opened up the application to to apply for forgiveness. Um, so at the end of the day, I think part of the challenge is, I don't think like when you looked at all your math and you were forecasting expenses and deductions and, you know, like people obviously work on this all year so that they don't get stuck in the 11th hour trying to figure out what they can do to offset, right? Um, so when I talk to my bank, they're just like, yeah, your forgiveness may be done this year. It may be in the queue for January. Uh, but at the end of the day, you should expect to be taxed on it. So immediately, regardless I'm of like, you're uh, forgiven in January, you're going to be taxed in 2020. Correct. And so I you was like, oh, I better figure out how to, you know, get deductions in or move or, or decide to drop some money on stuff that I'm going to plan on doing. In next. Like immediately, I'm just trying to think, well, I shouldn't just take the hit, right? What can I do to offset kind of thing? Well, again, so I'll have to continue to caveat that I'm not a tax advisor. The flip side of that argument is um, you also want to take expenses next year because there's a decent chance your taxes will be higher next year. So it, it, you could say, I want to take the expense this year because I want to defer some of that income. Well, you're going to really want to defer income next year if what they say in the newspaper is correct about how taxes might go up. 
So I don't think there's a very simple answer because there's a lot going on right now. I think we have to see it as if you received a gift from the government and that gift was really only 65% of what they said it was. 35% of it, they're gonna ask for it back in taxes. Listen, I'm, I'm extraordinarily grateful for what I received. It allowed me to make some very, make some difficult decisions much easier. If there's that little tax hit to it, um, I'd rather have the money than not have it. Fair. Quick question that popped in from Brent. He's our favorite uh, question asker here at, at Hi, the uh, MSP Initiative. Says, what is Larry's opinion? Do you find a new customer base or do you help existing customers pivot to a new business models or function? For example, my sister's company provides entertainment for events. They can they, you know, they're, and they're pivoting now to virtual entertainment. Like, like, I guess he's talking about what do you do if you're an MSP that was verticalized in the in the industries that were hit the hardest? How do you get out of that? Well, I think my understanding a lot of what you do with the the verticalization in the MSP space is there's a little bit of you know uh, market specific. Uh, configurations, market-specific software, but you're still setting up networks. You're still managing machines. I think what you do is you try to get into, if you're in, if you take the sort of broad theme of the question, you say you try to become less uh, focused. Um, as we said, these people, uh, we had done research that market-focused people had done better historically because the referral base is better. If you work all in with lawyers, every time the lawyers are in the room, your name constantly comes up. But if you work with lawyers and building people, they don't meet each other. So there's no critical mass of referral base. Um, so historically it'd be done well, except if you know you get stuck with an industry that unfortunately didn't do well this year. To your um to your the, to, to Brent's other question with regard to going from real events to virtual events, uh, from you know, entertainment events. Um, and that can be seen as the same way as selling additional virtual products. I think you really need to be careful what the market wants. Um, I mean, I know George, you and I have discussed from our business perspective, you know, I as a vendor going to events and not as excited about going to virtual events. You know, putting the word virtual in something doesn't automatically make it attractive. It's not an exact substitute. So if people want to see virtual events and they're going to pay for it and your, your sister has domain expertise, leverage it, albeit. This is a great time. She would have transitioned anyway if that's what virtual events are going to be. Um, if, if someone say virtual fatigue, yeah, we're all virtually fatigued. Um, the, the other question is, um, you know, if, if not, then she has to figure out how to live until real events come back. The same is true of, of our clients. You know, they went and started offering new services to help people because that's what they needed. They needed to work from home. They needed virtual offices. That made sense. Virtual entertainment may or may not make sense. sense. So I, I think it really is specific to what they're doing and whether there is an appetite for it. You know, uh, you know our, our family watches movies, all these movies right now on TV instead of going to the movie screen. That works. Going yeah. to see a concert. Wow. A little different experience. Yeah, although I hear outdoor concerts will come back at some point sooner than not. Um, of course they will. <laughs> so Larry, coronavirus aside, right? This is a time of year where you do a lot of, hey, we budgeted, we forecast, where did the numbers come into line? 
Like what you, what are you telling your customers at this point in the year? What activity should they be going through now to figure out where they stand, how to close out the year? Where, where are our accounts profitable? Should we be doing something different moving into the next fiscal year? Like what are the types of things they should be doing right now? So it's interesting you say that. So there's, there's a couple of things. The fiscal year for, again, from almost all clients that use a calendar year, that's coming to a close. Now, I have mixed opinions on this. On the one hand, the calendar year is a tax event. The fiscal year is a tax event. So if you have income, this is when you need to settle it up with the expenses to make sure everything matches up. And it's meaningful because it's when you pay now or if you pay maybe another 12 months later, so you can move it into the following year. That's a very meaningful annual issue that you should look at. You also need to plan for next year. Where I have a little bit of a concern, I have a little bit of a, a cynical view is just because the fiscal year is ending doesn't mean it's time to start planning for next year. And the analogy I think about is if you're a four pack a day smoker and your doctor says to you, you should quit smoking, you sit there and you're like, well, I'll smoke for another month until January 1. No, smoking's a bad idea. And no offense to smokers, smoking is a bad idea and you should quit tomorrow. You should work your way towards quitting tomorrow just because next year starts a new, there's a new number at the end of it. The same is true of planning. The same is true of business. You should always be working to improve. If you're planning from a tax perspective, what you want your income to be, yes, there are events you should do. I personally believe in continuous improvement and this year was a perfect example of it. If you set a budget in December, you could have looked back and said, well, it's, it's April, I'm gonna work on my budget for December. Or you could say, things are changing, I have to adapt my budget. I'm not gonna wait for a new year. The same is true, I think, for people going forward. They need to look at their initiatives, what they can fund in the next quarter. What are their rocks? What are their longer term goals? Um, build that budget. So first, obviously, separate issue, take care of your tax issues. Talk to a, an advisor, let them help make good decisions. Other issue, make a plan. And the reason this plan exists is you need to know one, are you gonna have enough money to pay yourself? And two, are you gonna have enough money to pay for your initiatives? Are you gonna spend as much as you wanted on marketing? Are you gonna be able to expand your offices? Is there equipment you need to buy? You need to budget realistic to say whether you can do that. And that's something you should be able to adapt to, but that's something you should be able to put together because you should have a plan for the year. And it, the year does break it down nicely in terms of initiatives and rocks and all the good EOS ideas. So that, that's what I think people should be doing is what's their plan for next year? What do they want to accomplish? Or even next quarter. So I know one of the big things that you always key on in is understand your math on your employee and staffing costs, but also understand your math on and my unprofitable agreement, right? Like, are my customers actually positive for me or am I just spinning my wheels or am I even actually negative, right? Am I actually doing more work and getting, and I'm working for them basically at that point. I, you know, it, I know you said, hey, like the end of the years of tax thing, but going into like the next 12 months, isn't it time now to like literally look at, hey, Maybe it's time to start, you know, and I know everybody's trying to hold on to as much revenue as possible, but if you're not making money on an account or if you're losing money on an account, it's probably a good time to start thinking about how to deal with that instead of letting it drag on now. Right. So uh, you, you use the good word to deal with it. Um, we have a lot of people that says, how do we fire clients? I always think that's like your fifth option. 
because these are people that have a relationship with you. They know you, they write you checks every month. Before you fire them, you see if you can fix the relationship. And there's many ways to do that. If you can't get there, yes, you have to separate ways. That's fine. But that's usually not what I would argue is the first thing that you want to do, unless they're abusive to your people or so whatever nonsense. So I would take that, what you said, actually take it one step different. You, I wouldn't say December is a time where you want to take a top-down look at all of your clients. I say December is a time in a planning perspective where you say in next year, I am going to, on a monthly quarterly basis to preview all of my agreements in the appropriate metrics. You know, every month I'll look at my trailing three months before that or trailing six months. So I can identify which clients are good or bad or agreements are good or bad. So I can address those situations or get them teed up next time that they renew. Don't do that in December. Make that part of an ongoing process. I mean, December is just part of that, but make that commitment that you'll look at your agreements, that you'll look at your projects, that you'll look at the productivity of your engineers so that you can constantly make improvements. I mean, what you don't wanna have find out is you look at December and you say, damn, this agreement was lousy. It's been lousy since February and I bled all year. What you wanna say is this agreement's been lousy since February. It's been on my radar since April. I've been trying to fix it since then. And it's actually, I'm better off than if I hadn't touched it because I only looked at it once a year. That's what so I like remind So remind everyone, where where is the... Where do you want to be from a profitability standpoint on agreements? Is there a special percentage number? Like, I mean, obviously the more, the better, but where, where should they be re- you know, reaching for? So there, there's, there's a bunch of different numbers and there are people that are smarter than me that, that talk about this. Now, gross profit percentage on agreements, a tough number because you always make less on products than you do on services. So if you load up an agreement with lots of products and a BDR and VoIP and Office 365, it'll look a little thinner. And you don't want to say, well, that's a bad agreement because you're throwing on more margin, more margin. You don't have to even work for You just, you know, for office 365, it's set it and forget it. Um, what you want to do is look at two things. You want to look at your labor margin and your product margin separately because they really are different numbers and you should have different targets, but you should also look at your pricing. How much value are you delivering in labor versus what you're selling them? So George, if I have an agreement with you and it's a $2,000 agreement and we identify $500 of that agreement as products, I'm selling you $1,500 of labor every month. Okay, if my time generally bills out at $1,500, well then if I give you 10 hours a month, I've given you $1,500 of labor for $1,500 of revenue, that's parity, that's one. If I give you 20 hours, that's five hours too many. If I give you five or 10 hours, it's 20 hours, it's 10 hours too many. And same thing on the other side. So I would be very aware, and there's different metrics for this. One of the ones that we look at a lot is is what we call the efficiency of the agreement, the pricing efficiency. What did you get paid for the labor versus what would you have been paid for that if you sold at retail? And you kind of want to watch that. Um, Again, I I refer to smarter people than me. Generally, we work with with C-level, but there are lots of good folks out there that do this. And what they say is you should shoot for an efficiency of about 1.2 to 1.3, because these aren't retail clients. These aren't people that walked in off the street and just said, hey, can you help me fix this? These are people you have an RMM on. These are people you have a unified stack on. These are people that there should be efficiencies and they benefit as much as you do. So it should be a little better. You should do a little less work for them. than if you, you set it up for a retail client with that amount of machinery. 
you get them. Obviously, there's going to be months up and down because issues happen or it's quiet. You want to look at over a period of time and you kind of want to get anxious if the, if the number's below 0.8, which means you're getting paid too little or above 1.5, meaning you're doing, you're getting paid one and a half times the value of the work because then there's the risk that you're underservicing the client. But the metric that we want is if you look at the value of what you got paid to what you, um, the value of what you did, 1.2 to 1.3 means you're in really good shape. So I got to think that the math may have been distorted now because maybe there was more, there may be a lot of people favored more towards onsite visits before Corona. And then obviously that hasn't been happening to the same degree. You know, obviously, you know, this virtual time is people working virtually versus not, does the time cost change in the math? I think it does. I mean, so there's a couple of things there. One is if you can resolve someone's problem on site, or if you can virtually be on site and essentially be the IT person on call for a company, if your one day on site is done from your home or from your office where you're on site and you're available, you're still doing the work. The real thing I think that it's a benefit to the MSP is that if you're able to resolve all those problems, the on-site problems, you're able to give them the level of the service they were comfortable with and nobody's on site. So it's not as if you're not there and that's gonna be a problem but you killed the travel time. If you had three stops in a day and now you have none, think about the capacity you're giving back to the MSP. Um, you know, on, on a separate note, I was talking to a friend of mine who works in investment banking and he was saying all of his people are killing it this year. And I'm saying, oh, because they're not spending money on, on flights, they're not traveling on the country. He said, that's not, that's not the whole story. They used to be able to see five to seven people in a week by traveling. Now they can see that number of people in a day because you can stack meetings. You're not traveling. There's not, I mean, you get, you forget the hassle aspect. I mean, it's the same true of our space. If you're not getting into a car, that's more productivity time. You can sell eight hours of productive work or six hours of productive work versus two or three when you net out the, the driving time. So have you heard from your customers at all about right sizing the you know like before if everybody has to drive to a specific office or city or location you the way that you compensate people is based on the prevailing you know salary costs in that area right now a lot of people have spread out maybe they moved to a different state different city different area cost of living is different Taxation may even be different, right? Because it's, you know, now you're getting taxed on where you are versus where you were working, you know, in the office or whatever. So has there been any complexity around that? Or have you, is there any strat strategy around that for MSPs, you know, with the people working, maybe not all in the same area now? Uh, I haven't seen it. Um, to be honest, we don't get involved that much with the tax stuff, which is why I always say that I'm not a tax person. I also haven't seen, and I haven't spoken to a lot of clients who have said, you know what, I'm in San Francisco. I wanna be in San Francisco, but I'm gonna fire my techs and hire them in a lower cost environment. I've heard about that in tech companies, but not in MSPs. Um, most people are, are being loyal to their employees to the best that they can. Obviously there's always the knock center that exists overseas, um, but I have not heard of a lot of, a lot of turnover. I'm sorry, George, you're muted. There we go. I got it. First of all, 
very quickly explain to us what, what EBITDA is and what how to, I'm sure there's a lot of calculators and resources out there. And apparently you're not a fan of this newfound term called EBITDAC. I'm not a fan of it. I mean, C, you either made money at C meaning, yeah, C at the end meaning coronavirus. I'm not a fan. You either made money or you didn't make money. Um, so EBITDA is, in simplest terms, you know, it, it stands for earnings before interest, um, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's essentially your operating cash flow. It's how much cash you can have to operate the business. If somebody's going to buy you, they may be able to play with the taxes and maybe able to play with your debt structure. So what they do is they look at it as um, what's your cash flow? How much can I buy you for? What are you worth? What are you throwing off as a company? Um, you can say, well, we're taking out depreciation and amortization because those are really not cash expenses and taxes. And you could say we're throwing out Corona's expenses, but they're real expenses. You can write them off as a one-time expense and make an excuse for it. I, I don't love the acronym that it's standard, you know, standard. And I will tell you, going back in the day, 20 years ago, people used to talk about EBITDAM for the, like, the pets.coms of the world. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and marketing. I mean, it was silliness. These companies were marketing companies. If you take away the marketing expense, sure, they'd be profitable, but they wouldn't be anywhere. Um, I think the corona is a one-time event. You should be able to take it out and have a discussion with someone as you need it. Remember, EBITDA is, not, is something that you can brag about at a cocktail hour, but more practically, it's something you share with your bank or you share with your investors. So when you talk to your bank about it, either they will or will not accept it. You cannot impose that upon them. And when you talk about your investors, either they will or will not accept it because they're writing you a check and then they may or may not decide to write you a check to cover it. Uh, and say that, you know, you're worth as much on without the Corona expense. So I, I'm skeptical. It's Corona is just another one-time expense that a lot of people have had. Um, so yeah. spe speaking of which, I mean, I know a lot of people earlier in the year who had like revolving lines of credit or something like that with their bank, the bank's, I guess did what everybody else did, right? Which was severely pull those back <laughs> so that, you know, they didn't get, um, they didn't get caught in a, in a vice. Where do things stand now when it comes to bank financing and, you know, like is, you know, is EBITDA the only thing they're looking at or do you find that some of your customers are, are finding that financing is now still available or easier to get? Like what's, what are you hearing around that? You know, it's funny. Um, Obviously, so there's a couple of things to unpack that. First, the banks did tighten up the credit. Um, banks always get grief for not providing liquidity in a difficult situation. And then they get grief if they provide liquidity in a difficult situation, it turns out badly and they fail. So banks can't really have it both ways. Either they make good business decisions or they're socialized banks that just hand out money. And I think we have to accept to make good business decisions, they also have to tighten things up a little bit at times. So I, I don't begrudge the banks at all, not giving out a lot of lending. From my perspective, the banks couldn't do anything in the spring because all they were doing was processing PPP. Once that cycled through and they're gonna start getting their refunds to get their money back from the government, um, I think things are opening up again. I don't think things are incredibly loose. I mean, I will know that I, I know that I, on, I looked at several non-bank lenders and they disappeared for six months. They've reappeared to me, um, you know, people to get uh, loans and advances from, they're back. So I think that people are now comfortable again, understanding and accepting the risk. I mean, it's the same principle we started our conversation about. 
if you're panicky, everything's a bad idea and everything needs to be conservative about. If you're calm and you make a plan and you see how things are probably gonna work out, you can manage risk and you can make reasonable decisions, informed decisions. And I think that's where the banks are back to, where they're making informed decisions. They're saying, you know what? You'll probably be here in, in three years. I think we can lend you money. So I don't wanna to get too far down the rabbit hole, but have you, ha have you had a lot of customers go through M&A during this time? I mean, I know some people who were ready to just get out of the business said, I'm looking for anybody who will buy and give me the number that I'm looking for. I, I don't know how things ultimately progressed, right? But you had any customer actually go through with a deal? Yes, we have. We've had a few that have gone through a deal. It's fewer than we saw before. You and I, you know, we know each other from Evolve, uh, among other places. And Evolve is very much about a life plan and very much about working towards an exit. So we had seen a lot of activity and awful. I mean, I think there might've been 150 deals through February. Joe had a number, he kept talking about that. That slowed down to a halt, but people still are doing deals and they're doing deals for the right reason. I don't think they're panicky. I think they realize that, you know what? I was planning on getting out. I'm at, I'm at the age where I can work for five more years of the paycheck. I don't need to have money on the table and they're fine. Um, so the deal is Case is starting to pick up again. And the best I can tell, they're doing it for the right reasons. Um, okay. But it's it's fair nowhere fair. near where it was Q4 and Q1. No, fair. fair. I, I, you know, so I've heard, and since you come from a an banking and investment background, I'll throw this out there. I've heard, I mean, obviously the PEs and VCs came downstream, right? They, they, they went through the vendor space a little bit. Now they're backing MSPs and kind of bulking mm -hmm. MSPs together, right? This is kind of what we're talking about. I've heard that there's probably another two-year run before the VCs and the Ps are going to get tight on the money they're able to raise, um, you know, to continue doing what they're doing. I don't know if you've heard that. I've heard that from a couple of people. Do you, so if, the, number one, have you heard that? Number two, if that's true, what do you do to prepare yourself if you're trying to either buy or sell? Oh, gosh. Um, so first, let's think about the private equity firms that are buying. Because the private equity ones, they're not really making investments, growth investments. They're buying and rolling up MSPs. Let's think about their profile. Their typical profile is they have a five to seven year horizon. They do not want to build a huge business and leave it for their grandkids. They want to buy a business, package it, and sell it in five to seven years. So there's a couple of questions there. And as they get closer to that five to seven year horizon, and we're probably one to two years into it when they really started getting active, who are they going to sell it to? The mom and pops, the, the individual operators that sold it to the, the private equity guys, they said, well, okay, we can get in here. And there's, there's a lot of good plays to be done for buying. I'm going to, I, I don't have an answer and I'm very curious how they're going to sell them. If you have an MSP doing, you know, an aggregate 12 to $15 million in revenue, I'm not sure what the exit is other than further rollups because it's not going public. And, you know, uh, the, the, the retail stores, the large box retail stores are not buying that also. Um, so I have a lot of questions there. And then the question becomes, well, where am I going to be in two to three years? Do I want to sell in advance of that? Well, 
you have to decide where you want to be. I, I again, I have my own biases, um, but I would say if you want to sell, I, from what I understand, there are still lots of conversations being had. Um, whether it's to another MSP or to a private equity or a private equity backed uh, MSP. Uh, but I really would think about if you're not gonna sell in the next two, three years, what is this industry gonna look like? What is the M&A landscape gonna look like? What did it look like four years ago before equity really got into the, the provider space? And I, I don't have a great answer and I, I'm not positive what, where that will end up. Will it go back into just MSPs buying MSPs? So I, it's not a great answer, um, but again, I would keep my eyes on the horizon when these people have to get out because they have investors and their investors want their money back. You're muted again. Nobody, nobody's, nobody's putting money in without taking money out. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, as far as future planning, right? Hey, now I'm looking towards um, what I should modify my business, what week should I make to be more profitable? Um, should I just be status quo or should I go out and maybe, you know, take money to do something different? Um, what do you, what do you usually recommend to your, to your people that you, you consult with? So the people we talk to, again, just the general focus of the product is that we focus on trying to help them be more profitable with their business. Um, so we don't always say, you know, take the money and run. That may be their life plan. And I far be it for me to disagree with them on that. Um, I think it's more that we uh, try to focus on saying, listen, if you were making X, can you make X plus 20% by making some agreements, some clients more, more efficient, more profitable, getting rid of some waste. And if you can do that, well, then you have options. You can live on 20% more money or you can sell at 20% higher value, but be in the best possible position to make that decision. Um, I, I, I do not, I, again, another caveat, I do not advise people on what, whether to sell and what a good value is to sell. George, I, I, I've been around long enough, I'm old enough, I have a couple of years on you. Valuations are fleeting. Uh, some of them are ridiculous. Some of them are horrific. It's hard to know when one is going to be good and one is going to be awful. Um, so you can play the game like I'm going to wait until valuations are amazing. That's a very tough game to play. You can say this makes sense for me today. Then that's fine. I think you should give yourself optionality. You say I'm here. If I make my business better, I'm happy holding it and I'm happy selling it. That's where you want to be. If you have the decision that's where you want to be. If you're saying I am going strictly to a sale, you know, MSPs are less so like this. They were a few years ago um, being valued on, on revenue multiples. It used to be, you got some multiple of recurring revenue and some multiple of transactional revenue. Um, so it was in your incentive. It was in your goal to sell as much revenue as possible, not even profitably. And the, the challenge there would be then, well, if the winds changed, People said, we're selling you based on your profitability, based on your EBITDA, based on your, your, your net margins. Well, I have no net margins because I'm making all this money and not making any money off of it because I was trying to hit a target. I was trying to build my business to a revenue multiple. And 
that doesn't work anymore because people don't do it. I think that's where you can get stuck in a trap. So I always tell people to, I, I advise generally, if anybody asks, which they're smart enough not to ask often enough, try to grow your business to give you the options to do what you want to do. And it could be one of three things and give yourself the option to pick the, which one of the three. For the people who really have gotten heavy to, I mean, obviously everything as a service is very popular, but let's say like hardware as a service or bundling in equipment as part of the actual service as part of their event. Yeah, I've heard of people getting a little bit too deep into self-financing that. Have you, where have you seen people successful with that? I mean, what, what the, what's the best way to do it? So we don't, again, we don't really set people up with self-financing. We do see it from time to time. Obviously there are the, they're competing essentially with the big players, the great Americas of the world. Um, some of them do it well. It's see that's, but if you look at, you know, do the hardware as a service, it kind of falls into this category, this broad category, people that manufacture their own products. Um, we see it a lot more and we've always seen it in cloud. Somebody will build a data center and sell, sell out virtual machines. And that's fine. They can make money doing that. What I, what we tell them is, you know, again, it's not answer your question directly, but what we tell them is if you're going to do that, know where you make your money and know where you lose your money. Are you killing it on your virtual machines? In which case, maybe you should set up a little bit of a business and see to sell your peers. If you can really profitably do that, or are you killing it on your, um, on your resale of that? and you're barely making a margin on the manufacturer. Well, if you're barely making a margin on the manufacturer and you're killing it on the resale, stop building it. There's plenty of vendors in the market that'll sell you, whether it's selling you cloud or selling you um, hardware as a service, but you have to know where are you making your money and where are you subsidizing the rest of your business? And we advise them to understand that so they can make that decision. I mean, do you see, I'm sure you're seeing a lot of people working with the big guys, right? The Amazons, Azure, Google. Oh yeah. You know, when it comes to the, when it comes to the infrastructure stuff, but I still hear a lot of guys that are putting servers in racks and, and into data centers, into co-location and they're doing it on their own. Are you seeing a leaning towards one versus just out of curiosity? You know what? I, I would have thought um, people would have moved more towards the big names years ago and it hasn't happened. So I've given up predicting, uh, people are good at it. People can provide customized solutions. People can sell the concept of security that you're not co-mingled with, you know, Amazon's millions of other clients or Azure's millions of other clients or Google's millions of other clients. They can sell that. Um, whether or not they're doing so profitably is a different story. And I, I would say perhaps they are. But I would have thought that, you know, it used to be back in the day, Amazon would lower their prices every three months. They don't really do that anymore. Um, and I say that regretfully as being an Amazon customer. Um, but uh, yeah, they, these private data centers do persist. They still exist. People still operate them profitably. And if, they're, if they know they're making money on it and they're providing a service and selling, even if it's just the perception of the service, the perception of security that Amazon doesn't have, the perception of stability that Amazon does not have, the perception that you have Joe the engineer who's watching over this, not an anonymous person, 16 people deep inside the Amazon structure or Azure structure. 
great. If you can sell that better, then go to it. But just make sure you understand if you're doing it well. I agree. Uh, Brent's got a laundry list of comments. Brent says, stick with, stick with that which is profitable. I don't think anyone will disagree with you there. Uh, he said, great question and answer line on profitability when it comes to cloud, whether you do it on your own or you go to the big boys. I mean, obviously, to that point, I think the marketing dollars for the big guys are definitely noticeable. But uh, I think I think this year, more than any other year, Larry, because everybody's so stuck on the virtual, I think people feel the outages a lot deeper now. Um, and there's been some big ones, even in the last, Microsoft had a few, Amazon just had the other, like last week. So yeah, those Amazon big was, guys had problems. ConnectWise was down, Brightcage is down. Yeah. Thankfully, yeah, for like, just, by happenstance, we're in a different data center. Yeah, for like a day. It was a, it was a tough one, for sure. And then he also says, um, the, you know, the VC-backed MSPs, or, 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 you know, somebody who's looking to go down that road, you know, are they looking to gain market share or eliminate competition by purchasing another MSP? Um, and I guess that comes back to the whole idea of where do you go once you get to a certain point? So it's actually, Brent, the answer to that question is, is, is neither of the above. What they're looking for is the, the concept is multiple arbitrage. Um, arbitrage means you buy something at one level and sell it for something else. I can buy, you know, stock arbitrage, you buy IBM stock, I go back in the day from when I learned this, IBM stock for $100 and immediately flip it for 110. That's riskless arbitrage. You sell it before you bought it. It doesn't really exist, but that's what arbitrage is. You sell something for more than it's worth. So what they're going for is what's called multiple arbitrage. If they buy an MSP above a certain size, and I don't remember where the number is, let's say it's 5 million in revenue, that MSP might be worth four times earnings, or five, that's called six times earnings. It's a platform company. If they buy an MSP for 1 million, that might be worth three times earnings. So if you buy an MSP for six times earnings and you hold that, and that's what it's worth because it's worth six times earnings, and you add another MSP with a million dollars of profitability, you've bought it for three and you folded it into that other company, and it's not worth three anymore. You now added six because you added a million dollars of, of profitability at a multiple that's much higher. That's, I think, what they're doing. That's the concept of a roll-up. You pay a high number for a platform, a lower numbers for the, the tuck-ins. Obviously, there's a hope that you can have some efficiencies, but I don't think it's a market thing. I think it's really they want to get scale because larger companies have larger multiples. So if you buy five small companies, you might be able to get there um, with, with multiple arbitrage. I think that was, I think that's the best way I've ever heard that explained, Larry, that way, and Brent thinks so too. Um, any, any feedback or advice on um, maybe MSPs not merging or acquiring each other, but partnering? Are you seeing a lot of your customers saying, well, hey, you know, we're good at this, you're good at that, let's get together and we'll just kind of either, you know, partner up on certain opportunities or pass business back and forth and have you seen that? You know, I don't see a lot of it. Um, I don't. You know, I, I, I knew of one Evolve group where they kind of had shared services, but I really don't see a lot of sharing tickets um, across MSPs. Uh, obviously, these people always will. MSPs will always look for, um, you know, they have a client who's got a 
satellite office in Texas that look for a resource bill to help out that Texas person if they're located in greater New York. Yes, there's that. But in terms of like uh, just sharing services, I don't see a lot. Good to know. Anything else that's worth talking about and when it comes to the financial stuff? Because that's your jam and open open mic. What do you got? Anything? You know, it's it's just blocking and tackling. It's just understanding your numbers, understanding what certain impacts will have on your PL, on your ability to take home money, on your ability to pay your employees. Um, really, I mean, at this time of the year, I cannot say it often enough. And that is make a plan, make it flexible. Because, you know, one of the issues that we may have, we're still at what, seven, eight percent unemployment? Economy is not great right now. It's pretty bad by, I mean, it's not as bad as it was a few months ago, but it's bad by historic standards. What I'm reading in the newspaper now, and it just as an anecdote, is that, you know, they may have a vaccine that's 70% available by May. There's somebody else that's talking about universal testing, and we could pretty much be done with COVID by Christmas if we get his thing out. There's lots of different things you read, but the point is one of these is going to work. Either the vaccines will come out or the testing will work or something will work. And people have always been worried about how bad things were in the spring. People should be worried about how good things might be next spring. You know, if you double your revenue or get 50% more revenue, you have to staff that. You have to be ready to manage that. You have to have layers in place. And if you sit there and you say, I can just, you know, add one more engineer and it's the same thing, it's not. And how do you know when to add that engineer? So it's a better kind of problem, but people do need to focus on what might be coming next year on a good sense. If, if, if and when we get, or when we get through the virus. I think that's, I think that's the most positive thing I've heard in like a month. What happens if you dog your business by next spring? That's a good problem to have. I mean, maybe doubling it off of a little bit of a low, but yeah, you, it is a good problem to have. It's a, but you know, there's lots of business books. Lots of businesses have failed because they could not digest growth. It's true. You know, getting growing think, is not easy. Scaling is not easy. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, people have all read enough of the books and you and I have read enough of the books to know the worst attitude you can take as a, as, a, as a manager is this will work if I only just work harder. That's a losing proposition. So you need a plan. It may not be that good. This is true. So be self-deplanetary in case it is. Yeah, I, that, is, that is true. We have Nick <laughs> chatting in. He's like, I'm a single man. I teach up. That's doubled my sales this year from the previous. And now I have to plan to hire for next year. Nick, that's great news, man. Cause that's the hardest time. Like at the very, like you hiring your first person or two or three outside of yourself. That's one of the scarier times in the whole story of MSB land, really. Cause how do you know when it's just right? Is it just uh, like, you get to the point where you're collapsing because you're working a hundred hours a week and you just can't do it anymore or, or what? Yeah. So that's definitely, um, that's definitely a scary time, but you know what? When you get over that threshold and you do start to add good people. And I think that's the hard part, finding solid guys to work with you. Cause not everybody thinks the way you do or, or works the way you do. Everybody has a different view. 
once you're able to connect the dots and get good people in their seats, it does change things, man. You can start to like live a little bit more and breathe too, which is I'm sure what we're all after. Although I don't think Larry's working hundred hours a week. <laughs> Always working. Always thinking about the business. Sure. Of course. Larry, how do people find you, connect with you, see what you have to offer? If that's, you know, if you can help them out at all. Sure. So if anybody wants to reach out to, to me, um, come to our website, it's www.mspcfo. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out to me there. Um, this is just so you know, I'm just not that interesting. George got all the interesting out of me in this hour. So don't be surprised if I'm less interesting outside of here, uh, if I was ever considered uh, marginally so here. Uh, and I'd be happy to talk to anybody. Um, I, I, I will tell you that George and I become friends over the years from being on the road. And I very much look back, look forward to getting back out there, um, going back to the shows, hanging out in the conference, in the, in the lounges, waiting for people to walk by. I love talking to people. I love talking about the business. I love helping people. Um, it's what we've really tried to do. And if anybody wants to reach out, happen to have a conversation. Hey guys, good advice from smart people can never get enough of that. So don't hesitate to reach out to Larry, myself, or anyone else that you find on these sessions, because we're here to help you. And that's why, we, that's why we've been doing this this entire time. Anyway, appreciate everyone for, for coming on board today. Uh, this session was completely recorded like Larry's past session. You can find that at mspinitiative.com. Just go down in the timeline and you'll find him. Um, I hope you connect with Larry if you think he can help. Uh, or just even say hi. Larry, appreciate you for coming on board. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, but um, I thought this was an important time of year to ask the hard questions, and we had some good ones in there. Um, and hopefully uh, hopefully everybody gets, you know, successfully to the end of the year, and hopefully we all see a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm hoping that, like you, Larry, I, I love – I'm going to use that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to reference you, though. What happens if your business doubles by next spring? It's a great question. Hopefully it'll be a problem you have to, you have to struggle with. I love it. I love it. Uh, catch you guys all on Tuesdays and Thursdays, one o'clock Eastern time as we continue MSP initiative live and Larry, I'm sure we'll have you back in the near future. Always a pleasure, George. Thank you. Good to see you again. You got it.